You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. This is the good news of the gospel. God made us, showed us how to live, but we chose our own way. Our sins separated us from God. But God had a compassionate plan. The Father sent His Son, Jesus, to restore all that was broken. We couldn't comprehend Jesus. Or His supposed kingdom. His message was radical and offensive. So So we we killed killed Him. But a greater story was being told. The Father placed the wrongdoings of the entire world, past, present, and future, on Jesus, making a way back to Himself. Now, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are raised to new life, free from all guilt and condemnation, as God is making all things new. His Spirit now lives in those who believe to take His good news to all people, even to the ends of the earth. This This is the the Gospel. Good morning, church family. My name is Jonathan Bonilla. I've been a member of TVC for the past four years, and I'm also your church planter. And I'll be reading today from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. If you don't have one, there should be a hardback black one somewhere near you. Uh, Once you've got one of those, turn to Acts 17. I know we just read uh, Matthew 28. That's kind of our jumping off point. But I want to just kind of walk through Acts 17 with you as we dive back into our gospel series. Uh, I'm, I'm always struck by the generosity of God um, around the teachers here at the village. Like I was chasing bull elk up in the mountains of Colorado uh, and then Josh and Adam just did an exceptional job and then my heart is full and so is my deep freeze and now we're going to dive back into this passage. Jeff's house, his family of origin, had already fallen to pieces by the time I met him. He was living with his grandparents who had given him a love Uh, for Gaither Quartet music, which made him a bit of an outlier in the high school that I attended because he not only uh, loved them, but he couldn't understand why we mocked him for his love of that. And he would say things like, do you hear that tenor? Or do you know how hard it is to hit a harmony like that, making it all the more easy uh, to mock and belittle him? And and yet, uh, Jeff walked up to me Uh, and said, I need to tell you about Jesus. When do you want to do that? And he becomes the voice that God uses to pull me into uh, the kingdom of God. And uh, I I leave in May uh, being one of the better partiers at my school, and I come back in August, September wearing an I Heart Jesus shirt. Um, And then I, I didn't know what to do except what I saw Jeff do. 
Um, and so I, I would say, hey, I need to tell you about Jesus. When do you want to do that? But I didn't have Jeff's lifelong church background. I didn't have Jeff's grandparents who were able to kind of shape and help him understand things. So I had Chick Tracks. Do you remember Chick Tracks? If you've got a church background, maybe you do. They were like these comic book tracks that told gospel stories. Some of them were absolutely awful. Uh, but there was one that I actually liked. It was called This Was Your Life. Uh, and so I would say, I need to tell you about Jesus. When do you want to do that? And I would give somebody a, this was your life track. And I, man, I just track bombed my high school. I mean, it was on urinals and stuffed into lockers. And I, if there was a place to put a, this was your life track, uh, I heart Jesus, Matt Chandler was putting them everywhere. Uh, and, and one of the first guys I started to try to share the gospel with, his name is Jimmy Herford. And uh, Jimmy was like a wannabe thug, you know, who would fight almost anyone and had quite the weed problem before weed problem was common. And, and so, uh, and so that's, that's what I want. I'm, I want the fringes, man. I, I, I don't want kind of the quasi good kid. I want the guy that might punch me in the face at the mention of this stuff, uh, and so started sharing the gospel with Jimmy, and I give him uh, a track, and he reads through This Was Your Life, and then it was a history class, and somehow I'm in the hallway now. So I don't know if I was making up a test or this voice that carries that everybody appreciates now had gotten me in trouble again, uh, but I'm in the hallway and Jimmy comes out with the bathroom pass and he's like, man, I, I love this. I, I, I love what you're saying, but man, I get high every day. There's just no way I'm going to, and then he kind of storms off and, and it's not long till Jimmy becomes a Christian. I'll actually tell you the rest of his story next weekend when we're talking about the simplicity of the gospel and Jimmy doesn't know what to do except what he saw me doing and what I saw Jeff doing and what Jeff's grandparents had put into his soul. And so then Jimmy's starting to go around. He finds him an I Heart Jesus t-shirt and he starts going around with this with your life track. And he meets Brent Baird, who, who was this kind of monster of a defensive lineman uh, and also a guy prone to violence. It seems like that was the stream I was in at the time. Uh, and, and then Brent, not long, becomes a Christian. You know what he starts doing? What he saw Jimmy doing what Jimmy saw me doing, what I saw Jeff doing, what Jeff had put into him by his grandparents, and somebody is behind the grandparents. You tracking with me? And then somebody is behind them, and then somebody, because you and I find ourselves caught up in something here that goes way before us and will be here way after us. And so I'm curious, this is, this is like participation time. So uh, how many of you became a Christian because you had Christian parents that shared the gospel with you and you became a Christian at a young age? If that's you, raise your hand up high. All right. Now, how many of you, that, that's not your story, you, um, you like a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or a roommate or some divine appointment occurred and that's how you became a Christian. So get that hand high. <laughs> We have to talk about this all the time. It's like, no, no, we can't see you. So yeah, yeah. so we, we've got this, like some of us grew up where moms and dads pointed us to Jesus. And some of us, we, we had a run-in with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker that, that brought onto our lives the weight of the gospel and by the grace of God, we believed. Now, it's important to note that this thing that you and I are caught up in started with 500 people in Jerusalem around 2,000 years ago and now is 2.38 billion people across the world. 
And, and although we're looking around and we're going, oh, it doesn't seem to be doing really well here, I'll tell you, I think that's more God's judgment than anything else because in the global south, in Latin America and Sub-Sahara Africa and in places like Iran right now, the gospel is exploding and hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, are saying yes to Jesus and walking in his power and his presence. And, and you and I find ourselves caught up in this. You and I, by the grace of God, have been rescued, have been, as Will said earlier in the set, we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what's happened to us. And so what I want to do at this point in our gospel series, I wrestled between this sermon and next weekend sermons in regards to which should come first, ultimately landed on this one. I just want to point out to you how this thing has spread across the globe, and I want to invite you all the more into it with boldness, all right? That, that's, that's my intent. How can you and I get into this thing that has gotten into us and, and find ourselves living lives of greater purpose and adventure? That, that's kind of my goal today, and to do that, I want to look in Acts 17. Acts 17 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I know I say that most weeks, uh, but really this one is. And if you've got history with me here, you, you know this is a passage we've frequented uh, quite a bit over the last 20 years. So uh, I'm, I'm answering the question, how, how has this worked and how might we join him? Because the truth is, um, although giant crusades and stadiums filled with people and dynamic preachers and communicators have a role historically to play in God seeking and saving the lost, by and large, people become Christians, not at crusades, but in the everyday faithfulness of men and women in neighborhoods and workplaces, living boldly the gospel message that they are partakers in. You good? You tracking with me? So I could stop there but I'm not going to. I want you to look at this and see this and let's marvel at it together. So um, in Acts 17, we find the Apostle Paul waiting for his crew. So Athens isn't the point. Athens is like the gathering place. And from Athens, they're going to jump off into church planting ministry. And, and it's here that Paul waiting for his crew to arrive. We read this passage, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, now I love this because every kind of move of God where men and women are coming to know Jesus, surrender to Jesus, and become Christians has always began when a person or a group of people are provoked in spirit by what they see going on around them. So in this case, the Apostle Paul sees that, that this is an overly religious, ancient city. In fact, there are idols everywhere, and the Apostle Paul sees the devastation of idolatry everywhere he looks, and he's provoked. And I would say that, that for us to see a profound move of God in our day, it will take us waking up to the goodness of God so that our own souls might be provoked at what we see around us. Now, if we're going to be provoked, there are certain things as Christians we have to lean into. Let me, let me give you a couple of those. First, we have to lean into the goodness of God and the betterment of our lives under the moral law of God, right? Without tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. You'll never be grieved for what others are experiencing. You'll just see it as normal. 
Maybe, maybe this would help. Did you get a donut when you came in? Who got a donut? All right. So here's what I would wager. I would wager that you walked in and you might, you probably were feeling pretty good. You feel good, you've got good energy, glad to be in the house of the Lord, but you couldn't help yourself. That donut right there with all that sugary goodness, you know, it's just going to taste, it's just going to taste so good in your mouth. And, and you eat that donut, you're like, oh my gosh, that's so good, I might even have another. I mean, you're fine, you worked out this week. So you grab another, and now how do you, well, you feel sick now. It's a universe, this tastes good in my mouth, and it's leaving me sick. Right? Well, if you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you, you will think the spiritual donuts everybody else is eating is good for sustenance. It's good for health. It's good for vitality. It's good to enjoy. You will miss out on the fact that what they're eating is making them sick. And, and I don't just mean this when, when you say yes to Jesus on the things that you two agree about. I think this happens all the more when you wrestle with the Lord and submit to his moral law, even though it's an area in which you struggle and don't understand. And when you lay that thing down that, that you think, if I were to actually let go of this, I, I would die. But you give it to the Lord and you find out that God is actually better than that thing that you are clinging to. That life is sweeter when you trust him and let it go. That what he has for you is better than your wildest dreams for yourself. When you taste and see that, you'll look around and you'll see the heartbreak and the brokenness of the other stuff that's in other people's lives and you'll be provoked in spirit. But if we haven't tasted and seen the Lord's good, you'll never be provoked. You'll never hurt for a community. You'll never want more for your neighbors and coworkers. You'll just do life. Or maybe I should say life will do you. And so Paul sees the idolatry. He sees the brokenness stemming from it. And he's provoked in spirit. And once he's provoked in spirit, he starts to look at how the idolatry is working itself out. And so idolatry in the biblical sense is just anything that you would exalt beyond Jesus as the, the piece of paper that your priorities are written on. You tracking with me when I say that? So, so anything that time, treasure, talent, you give those three things to more than you give them to Jesus is an idol in your life. It can be a morally neutral thing. It can actually be something that's a gift of God that you have made uh, number one rather than he being the, the number one in your life, or, or I like to better say the piece of paper that your priorities are written on. And so what he does is the Apostle Paul begins to look at the context in which he finds himself in Athens. And then here's what he does. He looks into their cultural framework and says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of their Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So the Apostle Paul is walking through Athens. He sees all of these idols. You've got the fertility god, so you can have a lot of kids. You've got the rain god, so your crops can be. You've got the sky god. You've got the sun god. You've got all of these various gods. And then he comes across an idol that just says this, to the one we might have missed out on. 
right? So the, the system that they're in is God's had to be appeased. And if you didn't appease a God, he would get angry and bring about destruction. And so they had this myriad of gods and they're like, well, oh my gosh, what if there's one we haven't thought of? You know, we, we, we got the sea God, we got the air God, we got the wind God, we got the God of the harvest, we got the God of, we got the God of this, we got, what if we missed one? I've got an idea to the unknown God. That way, if anybody ever gets angry, you're like, no, 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 this is, this is you. Well, the apostle Paul is walking, he sees to the unknown God and here's his end. Every culture on earth has a context and a way of seeing and understanding the world. And the Athenian one is hyper-religiosity, polytheistic, God under every bush. And so Paul's in was this. Hey, this unknown God, I know him. Let me tell you about him. Now, in order for our provocation to move us towards sharing the gospel, we must understand the context that we find ourselves in. It will help us herald the gospel in ways that can be understand. It will help us see the weaknesses of our context and meet it with the mercy of Jesus. And so you and I, um, may, if you're streaming this, might not be true about you, but you and I find ourselves in the suburbs of Dallas. We're not in Dallas, we're in the suburbs of Dallas. We are not city dwellers, we are suburbanites. Uh, and that has a very unique context that has to be considered when we think about faithfully heralding the gospel in our day. So the apostle Paul looks and says, here's the, here's the culture of Athens. It's polytheistic, it's hyper-religious, it is always afraid and always trying to appease and never at rest. Ah, here's my end, the unknown God. I know this guy, let me tell you about this God. So let's talk for a second uh, about the context of the suburbs of Dallas. This might be true about all suburbs everywhere. I just know it's true about us. I've been here 20 years. I'm not an outsider. I've drank deeply from the air of, well, that's a mixed metaphor. I have, I have drank deeply from the well of this area. And here's a, this is a great, there's a great book by David Getz called Death by Suburb. And here's what he says in the book, the suburbs require a kind of fierceness to stay fully awake to God and to the work of God in the world. And he goes on from there and he says there are eight toxins in all suburbs that a Christian has to watch out for, both for the good of their own soul and the souls of their neighbors who they long to share the good news with. Well, I'm not going to go through Goetz's eight, um, uh, eight because the sermon can't be that long, but I am going to use Tim Keller's source idol stuff to talk about the suburbs of Dallas. So Keller's going to argue that underneath all the idols that you and I might name of lust and, and, and money and you name it, um, that there are these four primary source idols. They are the root of all the fruit that you and I are trying to manage. And I think the first three land perfectly across the suburbs of Dallas where you and I find ourselves. And so let me walk through those very quickly. The first is uh, comfort idolatry. The suburbs were built around the idea of comfort. We, we just are. We are a place that loves comfort and pleasurable experiences. Here's how Keller would talk about the comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience and a particular quality of life. Now, the, the burbs are just built around this whole thing. Like, here's, here's things. That, let me just point out things. They're not wrong. They just are what they are, all right? Like, a lot of our communities in this area, they have neighborhood pools. 
but we can't be walking or driving three blocks to another pool. Not when I can give you $80,000 to put one in my backyard. Like we have communities all around here that have workout facilities that are there for its people for free. But man, I don't know who I'll see there. I'm not, let me give you 280 a month to work out, you know, six miles from my house. What is that? That's not wrong, but it is comfort. It is comfort. It is, I need it to be easier for life to work for me. And, and what you're seeking is, man, you want privacy. You, you want a lack of stress. You want freedom. Um, and you are willing to pay reduced productivity for that. You are more than likely, your greatest nightmare would be stress or demands on your time. And listen, this is what's ironic. The problem emotion is boredom. The suburbs make people bored. Uh, my sister and her husband um, went to a close country in a major city. Uh, and, and after about six months there, you know, I'm just chatting with her. And she's like, I- I'm really having culture shock here. Like the kind of stuff that, that like is just a whole different culture. And, and so I was like, well, tell me about it. And everything she lists actually had to do with being in an urban context instead of a suburban context. It wasn't the nationality and the ethnicity of the place that she was and their strange cultures. It was that there are no drive throughs here. There are no like crayons or things for the kids while we're having dinner. There is no everything she named was something that had to do with the suburbs as opposed to an urban setting and an urban core. Like, like we have been built, the whole system's been built around comfort and we're not careful this is where we'll be worshiping at the altar of comfort. And if it's not uh, comfort, it can be approval, approval idolatry. And here's Keller again. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. Now you have heard me rant over and over again the last 20 years about how we can't seem to get out of middle school. You know what I mean by that? Like just can't quite seem to get out of middle school, still want to be cool, still want to be in the in crowd, still want to, except now we have the capacity to put crippling debt on ourselves to get there, to wear clothes we can't afford, to drive cars we shouldn't have, to live in neighborhoods we can't afford, all to impress people we don't even really know. It, and it's, it's this, like we just can't seem to get middle school out of us. We want approval and oftentimes we want approval from people we don't even know it's a it's a crazy trap so what we seek is affirmation we we want to be affirmed we're totally willing to be less independent in order to get that approval Uh, our greatest nightmare is rejection people will often feel smothered by us and our biggest problem our problem emotion is cowardice because if you need the approval of man you have no opinion your opinion is whatever group you're sitting in so the truth is you have seven opinions, not one. Your opinions, whoever, you're quick to agree with whoever's talking. Why? Because you need approval. This is where you worship. I need to be approved. I can't be rejected. And, and then so it's comfort, it's approval. Uh, a third that I think is very common, this is, this is mine. If you want to know what mine is, this is mine, is control. Control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank. Now this is, I will wrestle with this till the day I die, I think. 
Now, I'm in greater freedom than I've ever been, but if there's gonna be one that flares in me, it's not that I need a massage, it's that I need things to go the way I think they should go. Like, I got, thank you, brother, somebody's with me. Like, I've got a plan for Tuesday, and everybody needs to help me make this happen. Right, and if they don't, I get a little frustrated. And what am I seeking? Man, certainty. I've got standards. We should all live up to those. I'm trying to live up to them. We should all try to live up to them. Greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Price I'm willing to pay in my control is, can be a little bit lonely, and we cannot be spontaneous. We must plan and execute upon the plan. Others will often feel condemned, and the problem emotion for me is worry. To be a little anxious. Why? Because the harder I try to bend the world to my will, the more it slips through my fingers. And then the last one, I, I don't think this is as common in the burbs. I think it's more common in the city, but I, I could be wrong. I have not experienced this in my 20 years with you very often. Um, power idolatry is life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. What are you seeking with a power uh, idol? Well, you want to win. That's what you're seeking. You want to influence everybody and you want to win. You will never lose. And if you have to run up the back of your grandma or kick Aunt Susie off the edge of the cliff to get there, so be it. She shouldn't have been in your way. Right? And then what's your greatest nightmare? Well, humiliation. Oh, man, if you're ever humiliated, that, that's just unacceptable. What are you willing to pay? Man, you are willing to be burdened with responsibilities beyond human capacity in order to win and to have that power. Others often will feel used by you and your problem emotion is anger. You are always angry. Now, this is what you and I are dealing with. This is where we live. These are not only our own fights. That's why I tried to highlight mine. But these are the fights that our neighbors and coworkers are in. These are the source idols and the gospel lays on them beautifully and calls people out of them majestically but we must see them for what they are, know where we live, and understand how to navigate. Now what the Apostle Paul does next is he deconstructs their world. He, he says this, pick in, in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed are his offspring. Now, this is a master class in contextualization. He, he says to this group that has a thousand gods that actually all of those gods are no gods at all. And if there were a God, and he's saying there is, would he live in the house that you built? And, and he's pointing out, hey, this food that you're putting in front of these idols, don't you have to go and throw that away just three or four days later? Don't you have to wipe them clean? What kind of God needs to be washed by your hands? 
What kind of God needs you to take care of it? No, no, the creator God moves towards us. We don't take care of him. He takes care of us. And he deconstructs their worldview and then enters in with the appeal of the gospel. He begins to reconstruct. So look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. His appeal is that if we are the creation of God, why do we think that the divine being is like an image that we can form with our imagination? Why do we think it's like he's like a cow or he's, he's like a monkey or he's like, no, 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 he, he's something greater than. He, he's not us or things like us. He's something bigger than us and he starts to make this appeal. He begins to recreate the world by the proclamation of the gospel. So for you and I living in the suburbs of Dallas, it means with our lives and with our proclamations that we believe there's one who brings Comfort, but it's a kind of comfort that transcends life's circumstances. We are the kind of people that are comforted even and maybe especially when things go wrong and our comfort is not wrought from wealth or certain um, like amenities around our house or certain vacations that we might get, but we have a comfort, a peace that passes understanding. And this is why a lost world gets genuinely confused when believers rejoice amidst suffering and loss. I'm not talking about spirit sprinkle happiness. That's ridiculous. I'm talking about deep lament with gratitude and confidence that God is on his throne, that we believe in a comfort that transcends all the little ways that our world's trying to comfort themselves. We believe in a peace that's given in a person and not in a set of circumstances. And we live that way and we proclaim that way and on the day of trouble or on the day of that spiritual sugary donut making them sick, we say there's a comfort greater than that comfort. I'd love to introduce you. This is how you engage a given culture, but we also believe that there's one who completely approves of us now. And he is so committed to making me all that I can be that he swears by his own name he's gonna do it. I love that passage in Hebrews. You probably know that because I've been saying it like every weekend I've preached since I stumbled across it uh, you know, several months ago in my own reading. Like, So you, look at me. You're approved of in Christ. Now, I'm sorry that you, life has been hard and you're still trying to get it. I, I know. Listen, I, my family of origin has some goofy stuff in it. I, I, I feel this one in my guts. Somebody tell me I'm okay. Somebody tell me I'm all right. Somebody tell me I'm doing a good job. Somebody, but if you live by that from the mouths of other humans, you'll be a slave but if you rest in what God says about you as being ultimately true, you'll walk in a kind of freedom that changes everything. And, and this is why, like, if, like there are some weekends the text has me saying things that I know are gonna create space here. But if I need you to like me, I would never tell you the full counsel of God. I would hedge my bets. I would shrink back. I would not call sin, sin. I would figure out a way to keep you here so that I might feel good about myself. But if God approves of me, well, then, man, you're, you're, you're kind of like just not as high up in my priority. Just not, I, I feel real free. 
I, I don't preach to empty seats. I preach to people. I don't, I, I don't want to be enslaved to you. I don't want you to be able to affect my emotional state by your attendance, giving, or blogs. If that's still a thing. I want to live free. You have one who's approved of you and he's so committed to transforming you from the inside out that he swears by his own name that he's going to get it done and that he began the good work so he'll be the one to complete it. We need only keep getting up. And we believe that the world is not random, that there is one who's in control so I don't have to be. I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to govern. I don't have to control every aspect. I can breathe and trust that there is one who's in control. And I might not understand how he's sovereignly reigning and ruling, but I can trust he's better at it than I am. Got a lot of evidence that I'm a crummy God. A lot of evidence that the tighter I squeeze on things, the more broken they are. And a lot of evidence nearing my 50th birthday that the more I open up my hands and let him have it, the less it breaks. Still a wrestle, but I'm learning. I'm slow, slow to learn that one. And then there's one who has all the power that there is, and he's for us. He's not against us. These are the things we live. These are the things we proclaim in the suburbs of Dallas. And then the gospel always calls for a response. And so let's pick it back up. In verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent just means to turn from the foolishness that they were walking in. Remember, in their case, it was worshiping all sorts of gods that are no gods at all. In our case, it's worshiping the idols of comfort and control and approval and power. Repent, let's not do that. Let's turn from that. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now look at 32 because there's always two responses when the gospel is proclaimed. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him. And believed. And so this is what we can expect as we faithfully live out the gospel, both in life and proclamation in the suburbs of the Dallas. Some will mock. We will be easy to mock. There is no version of Christianity that's going to be cool in its attempt to win people to itself. No, no, no. There, there will be those who have all sorts of great names for us. Hopefully, by the grace of God, those will not be true about us. But they will be said. We will be mocked. But some will believe. Here, look at me. You are among those who believed. How crazy is that? Like, everything, this is how you got this thing that we're talking about. This is what happened to me. This is what happened to Jeff's grandparents and whoever was before them. And, and, and what I'm doing even here today is what I saw Jeff do, which he saw his grandparents do, which his grandparents saw whoever do, on and on and on, all the way back to Paul being provoked in Athens and beyond for those who worshiped gods that were no gods at all. Now. I want to show you just a small example of what this kind of looks like. 
Um, what, and what I mean by that is feeling provoked by the brokenness of a, a, a given space, moving towards it with care, kindness, mercy, and resources, and then playing the long game of faithfulness as people grow. Um, we have a, a, a growing partnership and love for a ministry here called Young Lives. It is a ministry to teenage moms and dads. Uh, it was born of a group of men and women who saw uh, teenage mothers and fathers in this area that, that have no real hope, no real resources, that really stuck in what, either cycles of poverty or, or in cycles of abuse, just really terrible situations. And so Young Lives was born. Um, and just this last month, we've opened up a store for them on the east side. So if you didn't know, we own this whole corner, right? From Browning to, um, oh, come on, Morris. Uh, like we own the whole corner. We're on the west side. The east side over there we own, but we still got some tenants. So we used one of the open spaces. And we created a space for those teen moms and dads, and we opened up in the front of house an awesome free store for those women. And so I want to show you a quick video of that launch, tell you a story, and we'll be done today. tell you a story from this week because I've kind of been geeking out about it. Um, this past week, we had the moms and dads meeting over there, and a woman walked into the vape store. Unfortunately, our little thing is right next to the vape store. Um, and a woman walks into the vape store, and she asked the owner of the vape store, hey, what's going on next door? And he said, well, I think it's this thing for the church. It's like teen moms or something. And, and then she was like, oh my gosh, I've got my great grandniece in the car right now. She's been uh, homeless. She's had a baby. I've taken her in. And that sounds amazing. And so I, so she, like the owner of the vape store, like goes out and with the great aunt of this teenage mom who's been homeless and really in a dark spot, like brings her over to young lives. And, and then we're meeting, I mean, this is crazy because you're like, you know, great aunt just coming in for some vape juice or whatever you get at a vape store. I don't know what it's called. I'll, I'll, you don't need to teach me. I don't need to know. It's something, it's some sort of chemical from China. Let's pump that into our lungs. Great idea. And, um, and, and so he, like, he brings her over. And then one of the women that, that helped run Young Lives, like beautiful member of our church, he's like, okay, who do I connect this woman? Who do I connect? She's just a girl, man. Who do I connect this young girl with? She's seen more life already at her young age than a lot of us might ever see. Who can I connect with? And she has, she's like, I want her to be fun and, and gracious. And I need just the right woman to connect with her. And she's praying, okay, Lord, who is it? And, and she, the, a, a woman, like, this is who, this is who I'm going to connect her with. And, and then she's like, okay, do I email him? Do I get a phone number? And then this woman comes to drop off new gear. And so then she gets to put those two together. And then I think this, because the Lord's funny like that, that it won't be long until she's in the water testifying like you and I. 
that the Lord rescues the brokenhearted. I love stuff like that. It's just, it's just wild to me. So how should we end here? Um, I, I, think, I think two ways, two kinds of invitations. Um, the first is that you and I as Christians, um, we will feel the pull of these idols simply because we live in a place where they're so common and normal. And, and if historically you've been prone to comfort, so your whole goal in life is I, I wanna be comfortable, I want leisure, I want privacy, I want, you will drift back that way. If your, if your kind of source idol has been approval, there's some family of origin stuff, like no one ever said to you hey, when you were a young man or a young woman, you're enough, you're, you're it, you're, like, like that, that never got into your bones. You, you're, gonna, you're gonna drift. It won't take long till we're there again. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm being a coward again. I don't have my own opinion anymore. I can't be bold because I'm nervous about the opinions of others. I'm, I'm living in a way that says there's something greater driving my life than Jesus. And it's the approval of man. And that's coming out in how I'm spending and how I want to be perceived by others and what I refuse to do. Or gosh, I'm controlling again. I've tried to be real vulnerable here. This is where I will constantly find myself trying to manage and control and want everybody to do what I say because I think I'm right and the world would be better if you just do what I say. Ask me how well that goes in marriage <laughs> or with my kids or with the staff or with friends or with, it's a disaster. And so I'm repeatedly having to go, I, I really don't want this. Will you take it from me again? Here it is again. I'm, and I'm so grateful that his mercies are new every morning. I'm so grateful that the Bible says his love is said, it's steadfast. I'm so glad that he swore by his name and not mine, that he'd complete this thing that he started. And so I think one of the things that we have to do as Christians, if we're going to be provoked in spirit, is we have to confess and repent, dead gummit, it's happened to me again. I'm there again. Do you know that Luther said the entirety of the Christian life was one of confession and repentance? Like it's, it's not like this thing you do to get saved. It's this thing you're going to do all the time between here and glory. Like confess and repent, confess and repent, confess and repent, deep breath, confess and repent, confess and repent. Confess. And you, you might have a small window every once in a while where you're unaware of things. Well, the Lord loves you. He'll make you aware soon enough. And then back to confess and repent. And, and so what I want to do is create space for that. So we'll have men and women up front, and maybe, maybe you know. I mean, I've been there. I've sat where you've sat. I've heard somebody say something and thought to myself, Dad, go, that's me. He's, God is speaking to me through that person. I, I wish I wouldn't have come. And yet the invitation of repentance is one into greater life. It's one into greater. It, it, it might help you finally be provoked by something more than your own comfort provoked by something more than other people thinking a certain kind of way about you. It's, not, it's an invitation to freedom. And, and so there'll be men and women up here if you want to talk with somebody about that. I have found that saying the things that I'm wrestling with or feeling convicted of out loud to others makes it a more powerful confession that creates deeper movement in my soul. And, and I don't know, maybe you don't have anybody that you know that you can talk to about these things. Well, we're here for this. We're here for you. Uh, or maybe uh, today you've, 
man, you just never really actually ever said yes to Jesus. You know, here we are talking about this big thing that we're all caught up in, and you, you're here, and you're here probably because a friend or a neighbor or a coworker has kind of invited you in. And, and you just never, or maybe this week is when it happened. Maybe you've been reading the Bible with your coworker, or you, you've been popping in here and there, and you're just kind of considering the things of Jesus, much like I did for a full year, uh, maybe a year and a half before I became uh, a Christian. And, and, and then today is the day. You're like, you're, no, no, I've heard enough. I'm, I'm saying yes. Man, we would love to, like when you say yes to Jesus, like I'm, my, my life is yours. I'm saying I'm being obedient to you. Uh, you're my Lord now. I'm not the king of my life. You're the king of my life. Uh, I'm saying yes. Like the first step of obedience after that moment is to be baptized. And, and what you're saying in baptism in a very real way is, I'm in, guys. Come help me, and I'll help you. And then we kind of rally together, and we kind of clunkily move forward until all things are made new. And if that's you, man, we would love to celebrate with you. We, we'd baptize you this morning. we got shorts and T-shirts and towels and the water's somewhat warm. You'll be fine. And we'd love to rejoice with you this morning. So I'm going to pray for us. And while I'm praying, there are going to be men and women that come stand up front. They're just our prayer team. And then we'll stand and we'll sing together to honor the Lord. And if you want to receive prayer or you've said yes to Jesus and you want to let us in on that so we can come alongside of you and celebrate with you, we're, we're here for it. And so let me pray for us. Father, I bless these men and women. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that um, you, you came and you saved us. You gave us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you've stirred up our hearts to love. And now we ask Forgive us, Father, for where comfort or approval or control or power has displaced you uh, as the sovereign of our lives. Forgive us and move us towards provocation for this place that we find ourselves here in Dallas. Thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We bless you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.